This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Nine-year-old Rafael Edmund was bored one afternoon in 1973. It was a hot day in Washington, D.C. None of his friends were around to play. Most of the 20 people who lived in his family's house were out at work. Rafel's mother, Bootsy, was getting ready for work too, counting out pills and dropping them into a plastic bag. Bootsy looked at her son, who was staring off into space, bored to tears. She got up and said, come on now, I have something to show you. The air was hot and thick with humidity. Little Rafel followed his mother down the sidewalk until they reached a nondescript corner a few blocks away. Bootsy held a plastic baggie in front of Rafel's face. It was full of colorful pills, powder blue and pink and chalk white. Rafel reached out, but his mother slapped his hand away and said, Not for you. Never for you. We are going to sell these. Rafel nodded. He watched as a middle-aged man in a tracksuit approached them and handed Bootsy a crumbled $20 bill. She poured some white pills into a smaller baggie and gave it to the man. This was Rafel's first lesson in drug dealing. He was nine years old and already a kingpin in the making. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can listen to all of ParCast shows wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Rayful Edmund III, a drug lord known for introducing crack cocaine to the D.C. area during the 1980s. What followed was a drug and crime epidemic that garnered D.C. a reputation as the murder capital of the U.S., this week, we'll be discussing Rafel's rise to success as the youngest drug lord in D.C. Next week, we'll discuss Rafel's downfall, including his arrest at age 24 
and his infamous trial, where the jury sat behind bulletproof glass for their own protection. Now, let's dive into the life of our kingpin, Rafael Edmund III. Rafael Edmund read the invitation flyer out loud. Come one, come all. A spectacular night of wine, food, and dancing for my sons. Rafael, Man, Tonio, Toniel, Jerry, Johnny, Red Jr., and Blue. It was the summer of 1987, and all the 22-year-old drug kingpin's friends and family were gathered at his mother Bootsy's house in Maryland. Bootsy wanted an excuse to celebrate the success of her sons, both blood-related and not, so she decided to host a cookout in the crew's honor. The flyers had been put up all around Rafel's northeastern D.C. neighborhood, and the crowd didn't disappoint. The 22-year-old drug kingpin saw his whole crew among the throng, along with some new faces, eager kids who couldn't keep their eyes off the gold chain that hung around his neck. Rafel didn't mind the attention. He'd been looking for an excuse to celebrate, too. Between managing his $300 million a year drug trade and working to give back to the community, he hadn't had much time to stop and admire the fruits of his labor. To be fair, he had done some shopping lately. A Jaguar with gold inlaid hubcaps, a $300,000 Rolex watch, a pair of three-carat stud earrings. But Rafel didn't spend all his money on himself. He regularly handed out stacks of $10,000 or $20,000. He sponsored college tuition for neighborhood kids. Anytime a friend of the family needed home repairs or was behind on their rent, Rafel was there. He was a generous employer, too. His runners made anywhere between $1,000 to $5,000 a week, while his top-ranking lieutenants were pulling in $20,000 a week. Thanks to Rafel's drug ring, the whole neighborhood was getting rich. Rafel raised his glass in a toast to thank everyone for coming. He noticed a young woman in braids who hadn't stopped looking at him since he'd arrived. But that was how it always was. Wherever Rafel went, he garnered attention from men and women, admiration and attraction, respectively. One of the young boys from the neighborhood came up to Rafel and asked him when he'd be back on the basketball court. Rafel shrugged. Basketball was like therapy for him. He and his crew played basketball in a city league tournament every now and then, but things had been so busy lately, he hadn't had much time to play ball. The little boy frowned. Rafel handed him a couple of hundreds, ruffled his curls, and told him to stay in school. Most people in D.C.'s black community saw Rafel as a shining beacon of hope. He'd risen up from poverty to become a success, pulling up countless others from the neighborhood with him. Rafel only ever exuded confidence, rocking flashy designer clothes and jewels that cost upwards of $20,000 apiece. He treated his crew like family, taking the whole lot on vacations to see the Super Bowl in San Diego watch Mike Tyson fights in Atlantic City, and gamble in Las Vegas. But behind all of that easygoing confidence was a calculating CEO who used his money and power in D.C. to gain influence in places as far off as New York, 
California, and North Carolina. And all that money came at a price. While Rafel and his crew were living it up at a cookout in Maryland, the lives of thousands of people across D.C. were being ravaged by addiction, crime, and violence. Rafel Edmund III didn't choose the life of a drug dealer. In fact, it quite literally chose him. Born November 26, 1964, Rafel was brought up mostly by his mother, Bootsy Perry, on the northeast side of Washington, D.C. He lived in a house owned by his grandmother and occupied by most of his family as one of seven siblings. Rafel's father, Rafel Edmund Jr., known as Big Ray, spent his days working as a driver for the Department of Health and Human Services. On the weekends, he was a gambler and numbers runner in Philadelphia and Atlantic City, a few hours outside of D.C. When Rafel was a child, Big Ray quit his job, writing in his resignation letter that he wanted to pursue more lucrative employment on the outside. This more lucrative employment was dealing marijuana, pills, and cocaine. It wasn't as if Rafel's father was the black sheep of the family. The Edmund clan had been known in D.C.'s criminal underworld since the 1950s for their numbers running and drug dealing. Young Rafel was expected to follow in his family's footsteps. He got his first lessons in the trade when he was just a kid, watching his parents sell pills on the sidewalk. Northeast D.C. was known as the place to go for drugs. Cornell Jones, the reigning kingpin on the Northeast side, was infamous for mixing experimental and dangerous combinations of drugs like PCP, marijuana, and heroin. This caused an uptick in crimes and overdoses that caught the attention of D.C. police. Officers began patrolling the streets more frequently, catching small-time dealers in the hopes of finding a connection to Bag Jones. Bootsy wasn't connected to Jones at all. She worked solo, and on such a small scale that she wasn't even a speck on the kingpin's radar. But with the police presence heating up, Bootsy had to do anything she could to keep up the hustle without getting caught. So after teaching the tricks of the trade to Rafel, she let him go out on his own while she went to her poorly paid government day job. The cops would never suspect a little nine-year-old kid of being a drug dealer. Outside of his immediate family, Rafel's house was always full of friends and relatives who came and went, seeking refuge for a day or a month. Most of them also sold drugs, so the little boy had no shortage of advice on how to perfect his game. He learned how to ditch his stash, how to hide from the cops, and what to do if he got caught. But the golden rule was don't get caught. And if you did, the second most important rule was to never snitch. As Rafel grew up, he excelled in school and was strong on the basketball court. While he enjoyed learning and thought about going to college, he knew he'd never be able to make as much money on the straight and narrow as he could if he dealt drugs full time. Rafel had spent his whole youth looking up to the older gangsters in the neighborhood with their flashy clothes, beautiful cars, and swarms of female admirers. He wanted that life for himself. 
Rafel graduated from Dunbar High School in 1982, having been voted most popular and best dressed by his peers. He spent some time at the University of the District of Columbia, but eventually his interest in college waned. He decided to go back to the streets. The truth was, while his friends were able to go to college with peace of mind, Rafel couldn't stop thinking about all the mouths to feed at home, his grandmother, his siblings, and the gaggle of cousins and family friends that came and went. His mom and dad's small-time pill-pushing wasn't enough to care for all those kids. On the nights that the family was all gathered together, they'd turn to Rafel and ask if he had any money to take them out. He'd smile and count the bills he'd made on the street and then treat the whole group to crabs at Morgan's Seafood. Rafel had to take care of his own, and to him, that meant the whole neighborhood. Once he started making money, everyone wanted a piece of him. There were elderly neighbors in need of cash and young boys who looked up to him, and Rafel was too nice to say no. In 1984, when Rafel was almost 20 years old, he realized the small-time drug trade wasn't going to cut it anymore. He had too many people counting on him. As he saw it, the well-being of the entire community was resting on his shoulders. At the same time, Rafel liked the power that a wad of cash brought him. He could buy the newest sneakers without regrets or bring a smile to the face of a friend. He began to realize that a little power could go a long way. Around that time, Rafel's father, who had recently been hanging around casinos in Philadelphia and New York City, called him up to Manhattan for a talk, man to man. 20-year-old Rafel expected his dad was going to give him some money to help the family back home. He was shocked when his father handed him a kilogram of cocaine. Cocaine was already a popular drug at the time, but such large quantities were practically unheard of. A kilogram cost around $20,000 for a dealer to buy. Once it was cut, bagged, and sold, Rafel could make $100,000 off that kilogram. Adjusted for inflation, that's around $240,000 today. Rafel stared wide-eyed at the brick in his hands. His father patted him on the back and told him it was time for him to step up his game. This was his inheritance. Rafel was ready to step up to the challenge. Coming up, we'll find out how he spun that kilogram of cocaine into the biggest drug ring in D.C. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. It was 1985. Rafael Edmond was 20 years old. He'd been in the game for a decade already. He should have realized his last customer was a cop. Luckily, Rafel was in excellent shape. He could outrun the undercover officer who was lagging behind him, gasping for breath. Rafel turned a corner, 
he took the dime bags out of his pocket and buried them in the bottom of a trash can. When the officer turned the corner, Rafel smiled and lifted his hands in the air, all calm, cool confidence. The cop pushed him against the wall and frisked him. No drugs, no money, nothing. No evidence he'd done anything wrong. Rafel was booked and held briefly at the local precinct, but with no drugs on him, no charges could be pressed. It had been a close call, but he was safe. A year ago, Rafel's father had given him a kilogram of cocaine and told him to step up his game. He'd sold that brick and used the money to buy more kilos. But even as his profits multiplied, he was still slinging small time, dealing on the street corner by himself. He was starting to wonder whether the danger was worth it. But just as he was ready to shut the door on street dealing, another door opened. Up until the mid-80s, DC's cocaine trade was relatively small and disorganized. Independent dealers were scattered throughout the city, each with their own turf. So long as everybody kept to their own neighborhood, there weren't problems. There were only a few dealers who created large crews, like Cornell Jones, the biggest dealer in Rafel's Northeast Side neighborhood. Cornell Jones was a special breed of dealer. He was infamous for mixing combinations of drugs, like PCP and marijuana. Because many of his concoctions were dangerous and led their users to commit violent crimes, the police had Jones in their sights. On one chilly October night in 1985, Jones went to meet a dealer. It turned out that dealer was actually a wired informant. After 10 years of ruling DC's cocaine scene, Jones was arrested and sentenced to 27 years in prison. With Jones out of the picture, his crew scattered to the wind. Soon, his whole team was either in prison or in hiding, and the Northeast Side's drug market was suddenly wide open. Up until this point, Rafel had been a one-man operation, dealing small scale to stay off Jones's radar. But now, he saw a perfect opportunity for expansion. He brought together a few of his cash-strapped childhood friends and told them the plan. He'd provide them with cocaine, and they'd sell it and bring him back the profits. The exact source of Rafel's cocaine isn't known. At the time, most cocaine was brought into the U.S. through Miami. From there, it was shipped to major cities around the country and then distributed to dealers around different neighborhoods. Rafel was probably introduced to a connection by one of his family members, possibly his father, who gave him his first brick of cocaine. Around the time he started expanding his network in 1985, Rafel was introduced to an up-and-coming new drug, a derivative of cocaine known as crack. A few years earlier, dealers in Miami and Los Angeles had begun maximizing their profits by boiling powder cocaine down into solid rocks, called crack, that contained between 75 and 90 percent pure cocaine. It was cheap and easy to make. It provided a stronger, faster high and it could be sold at a smaller price point than powder cocaine. And because the crack high only lasted a few minutes, it was both incredibly addictive and required users to buy more frequently. Rafel started selling crack sometime during 1985. 
He may have done it simply to stay relevant. He saw how profitable the drug had been in other cities, and he wanted to stay ahead of the curve. And he was right. Crack caught on easily. His clientele loved the intense, fast-acting high, and the small doses and high prices kept them coming back. Things were going well for Rafel, and they were about to get much better. Sometime in 1985, Rafel was contacted by a high-up member of Cornell Jones's former crew named Tony Lewis. Lewis had been hiding out while the fuss around Jones's prosecution died down, but now he was ready to get back in the game. Rafel's operation was on the rise, and he was already becoming one of the biggest dealers in the neighborhood. Lewis proposed that they join forces. With all the contacts Lewis had from his time with Jones, he could be a real asset to Rafel's operation. Rafel agreed. Together, he and Lewis could build an empire. Not long after Rafel's operation expanded, cops started crawling around his usual spot, and the crew knew they had to relocate. But Rafel didn't just want to move locations. He wanted to completely switch up the game. Rather than sell out on the street corner, they moved their operation to the alleyways of Orland's place. The reasoning was twofold. They'd be out of sight of the cops, and they'd also shelter the kids in the community from seeing the deals go down. Out of sight, out of mind, something the neighborhood would grow to respect. Rafel's team had grown to around 50 people, and he ran a tight ship. He had his lieutenants, who were in charge of overseeing his dealers, who sold the crack and cocaine in the alleyways. He also hired lookouts, inconspicuous people like teens and the elderly, who would watch from the stoops and sidewalks, hollering out a signal to let the dealers in the alleyways know the cops were around. There was also a small team of runners who hung around on the sidewalks, directing customers to the alleyways where the dealers were hiding out. At the top of the chain stood Rafel and Lewis, Unlike cities like New York and Chicago, which were ruled by the mob, there were no major organized crime outfits in D.C. So Rafel and Lewis had no one to answer to. Sure, there was competition, but so long as everyone kept to their own district, there weren't many problems. The cops in D.C. were more relaxed than in New York as well. According to a Washington Post article from 1995, the D.C. police force was rampant with corruption in the mid-80s. There were endless reports of officers tampering with evidence, crashing cars, or working under the influence. But rather than admit they had a problem, the police chief and local officials swept it under the rug. It's not surprising, then, that members of Rafel's crew reported paying off cops who came sniffing around their turf. So long as they made their payments and kept to the alleys, the police acted as if the dealings in the neighborhood didn't exist. Rafel already knew every nook and cranny in his neighborhood, which became known as the Strip. His crew kept stashes hidden all around the alleyways, and they knew places to ditch bags if unfriendly cops came by. If any dealers stepped out of line, Rafel's enforcers were always around to teach them a lesson. They made sure everyone in the neighborhood knew the rules, if you skimmed off the top or tried to rise above your rank, you'd regret it. Rafel didn't want any murders drawing the attention of the cops, 
So instead, his enforcers just beat you to the brink of death so you'd never show your face around the neighborhood again. Not that many of Rafel's employees tried to cheat him. He mainly hired teens from around the neighborhood, so if they did snitch or steal, they'd be hurting one of their own. Community was everything in the northeast of D.C., and turning your back on a neighbor was tantamount to treason. As the cash flow became steady, Rafel started incentivizing his crew with higher pay. Dealers made $500 a night, while lieutenants made $5,000 a week. Runners and lookouts were pulling in $1,000 a week. His top salesmen made $20,000 a month. In today's money, all those figures would be doubled. Rafel had learned every trick of the trade from his family, and he still always turned to them for guidance. He kept his inner circle small, counting on only his mother, siblings, extended family, and childhood friends. He stashed his cash and supply in houses around the neighborhood. He had no bank accounts, no credit cards, no titles to his name, no property to speak of whatsoever. He said he kept all of the transactions in his head. His brain was his ledger. As long as there was no paper trail, he believed he couldn't be caught. Rafel's system became more sophisticated as his operation grew. He bought walkie-talkies with earpieces for the crew so everyone could keep in touch at all times. He even invented a language for his crew, a mix of slang and pig Latin. If a cop showed up, his lookouts would yell, Olare, or Roller, to warn the dealers. And if some ambitious beat cop ever got past the initial line of defenses, he'd find himself lost in the blockaded alleyways. Rafel ordered his crew to find as much junk as they could, from broken washing machines to shopping carts to trash cans, and lay them strategically across the alleys to make it more difficult to pass through. Bricks of cocaine were sent to Rafel's sister's house in the suburbs, where his team would cut it into dime bags. They moved it carefully, even hollowing out footballs and stuffing them with cocaine bags for subtle transport. Once the drugs made it to the strip, sellers could push over 500 bags a day at a going rate of $25 to $50 each. A total day's revenue could exceed $25,000. On busy nights, some dealers boasted of going through 30 bags a minute or making $25,000 in two hours. Rafel made sure everyone in the neighborhood had a part to play from the teens who handled the cocaine footballs to the elderly people he came to visit during discreet cash pickups. And when Rafel did well, the neighborhood did well too. As his payout got bigger and bigger, he started to give away more and more cash. If anyone had a problem, they went to Rafel. He had the money to fix anything. Unbeknownst to them, however, his generosity came at a price. Rafel and his crew never sampled their product, and he saw to it that the neighbors weren't touching the stuff either. But just outside their neighborhood, crack addiction was ravaging DC's black community. Crack was considerably more addictive than cocaine, as the effects of the high were instant. And since the crack high only lasted for 10 minutes, compared to cocaine's 30 minutes, Addicts were in constant need of another fix. The desperation of the crack come down led to more drug-related violence in the community. 
Addicts would get irritable and lash out at anyone, even their own families and friends. Those in need of a fix often resorted to theft or robbery. The homicide rate for black males aged 14 to 24 doubled nationally throughout the 80s, due in large part to both crack addiction and drug-related gang violence. Additionally, crack addicts were overdosing at a staggering rate. Pregnant women and parents were smoking around their children, leading to an increased fatal death rate and more children put in foster care. But Rafel's community couldn't see the consequences happening just beyond their block. Instead of seeing the dangers of crack, they only saw the money it could bring in, and they were eager to get involved in any way they could. If a family needed money for rent, Rafel would gladly give it to them, then use their house as a place to store his supply. If he gifted a teen a new pair of sneakers, it meant he wanted him to join his team. To the kids, Rafel was a local hero, someone to look up to. To parents, the danger of drug dealing seemed less immediate than the security of making an income. They were happy to let their kids become involved in Rafel's crew. With his tall, lean frame and handsome young face, 20-year-old Rafel was the talk of the town. He was notorious among the Northeast side, and as his operation grew, rumors of his exploits spread across D.C. Wherever he went, a flock of women were sure to follow, and he treated them well, buying them jewelry and clothes to court their affections. He'd spend thousands in the club to drink and dance the night away. The next morning, he'd wake up early to play basketball with his crew. Some said he would have been good enough to go pro if he wasn't under six feet tall. As Rafel's operation expanded, he got in contact with some of his childhood friends who'd moved out of D.C. He recruited an old friend, Royal Brooks, to sell drugs for him in North Carolina, where he'd moved for college. He also started making regular trips out west to explore connections in California and Las Vegas. But as Rafel's empire was climbing its way to the top, he was already about to meet the woman who would spell his downfall. Coming up, we'll explore the partnership that changed Rafel's life forever. Now back to the story. The year was 1986, and Rafel Edmund was bringing in more money than he knew what to do with. He was already at the top of the game in D.C., and with new cocaine hookups in New York and North Carolina, his enterprise was poised to grow even further. A few times a week, Rafel and his crew ate lunch at the Florida Avenue Grill, a frequent spot for local hustlers. One day over lunch, he noticed a blonde woman prowling the restaurant in a miniskirt and stilettos, selling jewelry out of a scratched leather briefcase. He called her over. He bought a gold ring from her briefcase, then told her to keep both the ring and the cash. He said that he liked her, and he knew she was trying to make money. He didn't need the spare cash anyway. The woman smiled. They were going to get along fine. Her name was Alta Ray Zanville, known as Ray, and she was a 45-year-old Navy clerk who sold jewelry on the side to make ends meet. No one could understand why Rafel had taken an interest in Ray. He was only 21 years old, and he had a plethora of beautiful women his age following him around. Ray was nothing special. She was an older white woman 
and to Rafel's friends, she tried too hard to look and act young. But Rafel and Ray's relationship was more than just sexual. He confided in her about the money he had made and the quandary he faced about how to spend it without getting caught. He refused to put any property in his name to avoid leaving a paper trail. He needed a way to launder his money. Ray, with her years of experience in the jewelry business, had an idea. They would launder the money through real estate. Ray would buy apartment buildings throughout D.C., then rent them out for free to her friends and associates. Rayful would funnel his money into the property's bank account, marking it down as rent payments. Ray would keep a cut of the money and send the rest back to Rayful. Ray Zanville's name would be on everything to avoid a paper trail leading back to Rayful. The money would come in dirty and come back clean. It was a foolproof plan. With all that clean, untraceable money coming in, Rayful began spending like a true drug lord. He went on shopping sprees at designer stores like Gucci and Versace, bought gold chains encrusted with diamonds, and built a collection of Mercedes-Benzes and BMWs. Ray was by his side for the whole ride. By the next year, in 1987, the scheme was still working perfectly. Rayful decided to treat his inner circle to a first-class trip to Las Vegas. There was a fight between Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvelous Marvin Hagler that everyone wanted to see. Rayful leased a private jet and rented out 15 rooms at the Imperial Palace Hotel for his crew. During the match, they sat right on the side of the ring. There was another motive for the trip. Rayful knew that the fight would be attended by drug kingpins from around the country, and he was looking to have a word with Melvin Butler. Butler was a cocaine salesman from Los Angeles who got his cocaine directly from Colombia. He was looking to expand into other cities, and the way Rayful pitched it, D.C. sounded like the best place to go. Butler talked to his team back in Los Angeles, and they agreed to strike a deal with Rafel and his partner, Tony Lewis. He would be their exclusive cocaine connection, giving them more than enough supply directly from the source. His product was pure, better than what they were getting in D.C. The cost was cheaper, too, and they could get significantly more product faster. Rafel and Lewis quickly agreed. From then on, they'd get all their cocaine direct from L.A. Rafel and his crew would travel to L.A. with the money and return to D.C. with the supply. They typically shipped 200 kilos via U-Haul trucks, then bring smaller quantities back in suitcases. Once the drugs made it to D.C., Rafel stored it in his family's houses around the city. He never let anyone outside of his family and close friends directly handle the product. They would typically pay $17,500 for a kilo, a discount from the usual $20,000 they'd been paying in D.C. After cutting and bagging, each kilo would bring in between $70,000 and $100,000 in profits. Rafel was proud of his product, always boasting that his cocaine and crack were pure. Unlike small-time dealers, he never cut his coke with harmful fillers like laundry detergent or laxatives to give the appearance of more product. His commitment to quality apparently paid off. Over the course of a year, Rafel imported more cocaine than any other dealer in D.C. history, 
moving more than a few hundred kilos a month. He was making $30 million or more every month. Through it all, Rafel made sure to keep his hands clean. When he flew out, he would do the negotiating himself, but any money or drugs were handled by his team. To an outsider, it looked as if Rafel went to Los Angeles to party. He spent most of his time in clubs with Melvin Butler and his connections until the deal was finished and it was time to head back to D.C. Everything was smooth sailing. Rafel was essentially the CEO of a multi-million dollar national black market corporation. He had a steady supply of product that was in high demand. His crew was quick, efficient, and competent. Everyone was happy because everyone was getting paid. There was a friendly competition between the two leading partners that became an inside joke amongst the crew. When Rafel got the new Range Rover, Lewis did too. If Rafel bought a new chain, Lewis would come in with something bigger. Rafel would buy $600 shoes, and Lewis would come in with a $700 pair. Rafel took to gambling as a way to spend some of his extra cash. Running around on the basketball court didn't exactly suit his new image, so he switched to playing numbers and working craps tables. He once boasted that he'd won $100,000 in one night. Things between Rafel and his girlfriend Ray Zanville were going well too. He'd bought her a new car, some jewelry, and even allowed her to start a side venture dealing drugs in DC's more affluent neighborhoods. Things had died down with their money laundering scheme as Rafel had found another solution. There was a clothing store in D.C. called Linnea Pitti that sold designer clothing and tailor-made Italian goods. Rafel and his crew frequented the store, spending tens of thousands of dollars on clothing and shoes. The management knew that the money was dirty, but they quietly agreed to ignore it. Everything was coming up Rafel. He'd become a mythical figure in D.C.'s black community, half man, half legend. By 1988, At only 23 years old, he was in control of 60% of D.C.'s crack and cocaine, grossing $300 million a year in sales. He was the king. But notoriety came at a cost. Crack and cocaine were everywhere, ravaging the D.C. community with overdoses and violent crimes. And the problem was no longer contained to the inner city. By 1988, the D.C. suburbs had more cocaine-related emergency room admissions than any other suburban area in the country. The mayor's office turned up the pressure on the police. All this cocaine had to be coming from somewhere, and it was time to sniff out the source. Rafel wasn't doing himself any favors by walking, talking, and looking like a drug kingpin. In fact, he was digging his own grave. By the end of 1988, Rafel's drug ring was at the height of its success. But in just a few months, it was about to come crashing to the ground. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore the dramatic fall of DC's youngest drug lord, including his arrest, his highly publicized trial, and his eventual turn to government informant. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, 
or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Margot Perkins and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.